Hey, and welcome to episode two of season two, kind of, yep. of the Beer and Bible podcast. I'm Paul. I'm Dan. And we are tackling part two on this personhood idea, concept, construct. The myth, Satan. The <laughs> Satan. <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend. I don't think we want to go that far. But. No, probably a woman anyway. Oh, well, we just lost half of our listeners right now. <laughs> no, actually, um, all of the all of the character sketches of Satan are masculine, so don't have to worry about that. No, all right. Well, we're jump. So we. Went- what was, what was oh. the movie though? Wasn't there like a bedazzled? Not bedazzled. Um, there was a movie where Satan was a woman. Oh, and it had I'm that to cheesy actor. Oh. I know the guy who's in Tarzan. Tarzan. And now, anyway, now we'll, somebody is listening to this and they're going to... We'll work it out. <laughs> anyway. Brendan <clears throat> Fraser was the actor. Yeah. So anyway, it was... Um, yeah, I do say he or she was mentioned in three places because... Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's fair to say that it's a man. It's more like a, a thing. An entity. An entity, like a, an opposite of God almost? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the point. So maybe me saying it was maybe a woman anyway isn't a fair comment. Maybe not. It's as fair as saying that he was a man. That is true. And now I am actually literally... It is called. It was called Bedazzled. Yeah, Bedazzled. You actually knew the name of the movie as well. Yeah. It was played by Elizabeth Hurley, the devil. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that was a sidetrack there. So anyway... <laughs> <clears throat> the devil. Sorry, clearing my throat. Um, fighting a cold off. With beer. Yep. Beer and garlic. That is, if you have a cold, beer and garlic. So if you have a cold and you're over 21. Yes. 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 In the United States at least. Yep. Um, so we, the last episode, let's just recap quickly. Yeah. Um, there's three points in the Old Testament in which Satan, the is mentioned. The devil is not mentioned at all. Um, mostly because it's derived from a Greek word, diablos, mm-hmm. um, or Latin word. But anyway, um, the word that is used is hasatan, and it means the accuser. <clears throat> and it is it pops up in First Chronicles twenty one verse one, like very randomly. And so the go Sat- count your army. Yeah, the Satan rose up and incited David to count his army. That seems um, really dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously he's been told not to, but it's not kind of like the Satan devil we've always envisioned. Mm, nope. Nope. Um, not at all. And that's all it is. There's no like context to it. Just, oh, hey, and the Satan. Um, so then in Job, he has the most... It's the biggest character sketch we have in the Old Testament. He... Acts as like this accuser. He walks in. He says, "Hey, Job's only good because you baby him." Um, so we went through that, and then in Zechariah, we have a similar scene where Satan is also in heaven, just like in Job. In mm-hmm. Job, Satan is in God's boardroom. Um, same thing happens in Zechariah. God has his courtroom scene, and Satan is standing there to accuse this high priest named Joshua. And so a similar thing plays out. Um, to the Job incident, only God rebukes the Satan and um, basically says this whole thing is risky business. They're just people. Um, 
but you're rebuked, Satan, for your accusations against him. So the, in the whole Old Testament, we don't have this idea of red guy, pitchfork, horns, running after people trying to get them to sin <clears throat> no. or do the wrong thing or tempt no, the them, really? The closest we get to a temptation would be when the Satan arose and incited David to, to count. count his army. Yeah. That would be the closest to the tempter motif. And for anybody that is saying, well, what about the snake in the garden? Those connections have not been made yet. Yeah. Um, for anybody that brought up the Isaiah 14 passage, um, where it's been popularized that that's the passage that talks about Satan falling like a star from heaven. The more, yeah. Um, that chapter or that passage begins and ends saying that this is about the king of Babylon. And so, that's where we kind of also discuss the idea especially with the Job one, with the, the divine council idea or the, board, the cosmic boardroom. And then with Isaiah 14 we're talking about, I think we did touch on a little bit the idea of principalities overseeing empires and that thought process. I was yeah. in the Jewish mind and also in the Old Testament, the idea of not demonic. I'm just trying to think of people who are part of the cosmic council who yeah. oversaw lesser nations. Lesser nations, yeah. yeah. Like Yahweh or oversaw Israel. Israel. And the lesser deities, for lack of a better way of putting it, oversaw the other nations. Yep. But Which, at the end of the day, the Israelites would go around and say, yes, your God is a valid God, um, the God of your nation. However, Yahweh is your God's boss. boss. Yeah. And that's not a common thought at all today. You're no, kind of being not the way we think about the world. No, we, we think about the world as like, especially in Christian circles, like there's one God, one God only. And there, there's no other deities mm -hmm. necessarily roaming this planet. And we, the idea of divine counsel is kind of thrown out in general anyway. Yeah. In, in conservative Christian circles, I would say. Yeah, there's definitely a pushback um, in, uh, like, for example, the Bible Project, mm -hmm. which stays very orthodox in all of their um, videos, has now released a video on the divine counsel that's really good. Yeah. Um, we'll post it on the on the Fear and Bible podcast webpage, uh, Facebook yeah. page. So anyway, there are people circling back around to it because there's questions that come up. Um, like any rational person who's reading through the Bible and has three obscure verses about Satan throughout the entire Old Testament, and then they flip the page to the New Testament, and all of a sudden Satan is mentioned like hundreds of times. He's on in every book um, on... You know, every couple pages, he pops up again. As a developed character as well. Yeah, almost. as a fully formed, developed character. People approaching the Bible for the first time that don't know anything about the religion of Christianity are going to say, where did this guy come from? What the heck happened? Yeah, and I mean, that's hard for us because we get, we, in the Western world, have a developed idea mm -hmm. of what Satan or the devil is before you sometimes mm -hmm. even open the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, and culture. I, yeah. Depending on which uh, tradition of the church you grow up in, your demonology may actually be stronger than your theology oh, yeah. by the time you're like 12 years old. Yeah. Um, so it's all super interesting stuff that we're about to get into because this is a time period that's not talked a lot about yeah. on Sunday mornings. I don't know if you've ever preached from the Book of Enoch for on a Sunday morning. No, no. Maccabees, yes. Enoch, no. <clears throat> So, so to, to set it up, the intertestamental history is between what? It's uh, after Israel comes back um, to the land. They rebuild their temple. 
that's happening in Ezra and Nehemiah um, period of the Bible. And actually, if we were to place them in chronological order, I want to say Nehemiah would be the last book yeah. of the Bible, essentially. Of the, of the Old Testament. That's what we call the Old yep. Testament. Yeah. Yep. Um, as far as telling the story, the narrative. Yeah. Um, so it's from that period up until actually the New Testament period is considered Second Temple period up until 70 AD when the temple is literally destroyed. destroyed. Yeah. So it's basically the whole time period from when the temple is rebuilt to the time the temple is destroyed right. in 70 AD. And so what? So we have this time period where in the Western Christian culture or churches, or churches in general, I'd say, um, don't have any scriptures. There's kind of like this, what some people refer to as like the silent period mm-hmm. of, of history inside of the church. Right. Or people just assume God didn't talk for like 400 years. Yeah. And then this shows up as, a, as like Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And where we have like the book of Maccabees, Enoch, and a whole bunch of other books that mm-hmm. were written that were not canonized. And that's a whole other topic. Yep. Um, that give us a development of this character of the devil or Satan. Yep. I think that the development of the Satan character actually begins earlier than Enoch, though. We're definitely going to get into Enoch because that's the first time we see a purely Jewish idea of a evil being that's opposed to God. And because in the the what we say last in our last episode is kind of like Satan's function is the accuser. Like he's the one that's accusing yeah. the human race, a prosecuting attorney, I think we used. Right. And he wasn't actually a bad guy per se. Yeah. It sounded like he was doing his job. Like in Job, God says, where have you been? And he's like, well, I've been going to and fro across the earth. And then um, God is like, have you seen my man Job? <laughs> like, <laughs> he wasn't like, what are we like doing chatting, down there? Yeah, was just like, chatting in a boardroom meeting. Yeah. Um, there's no the first time he shows any harshness towards the Satan character is in the Zechariah three one through five passage, where and it's more of a, re- a rebuke, like a yeah. boardroom discussion turning into, "Hey, you shouldn't have done that, or don't do that." Yeah, it's like your your condemnation or your accusation against Joshua is rebuked. Yeah, um, but still not like, "Hey, you're the ultimate evil." They're not going at it with like swords no, or anything. No, or, yeah. he doesn't even say you're fired or anything. No. <laughs> So, so here's um, here's what's interesting to me is I believe that the Satan motif really begins to gain steam not from a Jewish perspective but actually from Persia, mm-hmm. which would be like modern day Iran. And um, the reason I believe that is going to flesh out here in a minute, but um, there is a movement or actually a prophet named Zarathustra. And he was an ancient Iranian prophet or Persian prophet um, who we're not really sure when he lived, but we know the general period. And it was around the time that Israel had been conquered by Babylon that this guy was going around and teaching. Yeah. And basically what he was teaching was, hey, there's only one God, which at this point would have jived up nicely with Judaism. Yeah. And he says, hey, and we more or less have free will. We have to choose good or evil, which fits in with Deuteronomy. I think it's six where God says, behold, I set before you life and death. prosperity. or Yeah, life and death. Basically choose yeah. how are you going to live. And then 
it was a karma-heavy religion, so good deeds ended up being um, blessings, whereas bad deeds would bring you curses. Yeah. And you reap what you sow, almost. Right. Yeah. So they had a pretty close allegiance between Judaism and this Zoroastrian thought, or Zarathustrian thought. And it's happening at the same time that the Israelites, coincidentally, are conquered by Babylon, and then Persia comes in and sweeps Babylon under the rug. Mm -hmm. So now they're under a Persian-influenced government whose state religion is Zoroastrianism. And then, to top it off, the Persians treat the Israelites with respect. They um, give them back their land. They actually pull money from the royal treasury to um, fund the repopulating effort of Israel, which Babylon just came in and was like burning everything, destroying everything, and deporting all the people. Whereas Persia actually gave them back their land in a state-sponsored repopulation of the area. Yeah. So there were there was pretty good feelings between Persia and Israel. And there's a lot of commonality in their yep. religious beliefs, the monotheism, yes. yep. the almost the yin and the yang, the, the believing of mm -hmm. good and evil. Um, so they jived well together. Yeah, one major difference, though, that the Persians had that the Jews didn't is this idea of a cosmic dualism. And what I mean by that is if there's an ultimate good God, then the Persians would have argued that there was also an ultimate evil mm -hmm. um, that was constantly rising itself up against the good God. And if we go back to the concept of what the devil or Satan was in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. there wasn't that conflict. They were working no. in the same boardroom yeah. with God being the boss yep. kind of deal. And there was definitely some sort of rebellion. There's like, and this is what we're going to get into with Enoch, is how did the Israelites really get to the place where they could believe in a higher evil. Yeah. Um, they had to they had to walk through their own scriptures and see where in the text they saw it. Because they weren't just gonna quickly adopt Persian thought for no reason. Yeah. And so we'll get there with uh Enoch. But this idea of a yin and a yang, um of the good deity and the evil spirit. Um, that really came on the scene hot and heavy with Zoroastrian thought. Mm -hmm. And at their time, at their peak, um, Persia was the largest empire the world had ever seen. So, I mean, it was hugely influential, not just to the Jews, but to everybody within that region. Yeah. So, you, so I mean, mm -hmm. if we're th looking at this at kind of like a larger picture... We, would you argue then that Judaism in its essence back of like in the Old Testament during that time did not have this idea of cosmic dualism that is not found in their scriptures as they were reading it at that time until the, until Zoroastrianism kind of intertwined with mm -hmm. their thought. Right. And then I think because of the influence of it, they read back through and they found hints of how to how to kind of write that back into their culture. Much like we do with like Isaiah 14. Right. So yeah. we we believe that Satan was a fallen angel. So then we see a passage about a falling star and it talks about how wicked it is and evil and that it set itself up against God. And we immediately 
retranspose our modern image of Satan back onto Isaiah 14. And so the Jewish people <clears throat> did the same thing with Zoroastrianism. They kind of had this, they didn't have a cosmic dualism belief. They mm-hmm. kind of took that from Zoroastrianism and then they transposed it back onto their scriptures. Yep. Um, they did it more tactfully, though, than us <laughs> superimposing back onto Isaiah 14. Yeah. Because Isaiah 14, the thing about it is it begins and ends saying this is a prophecy for the king of Babylon. Yeah. So We kind of skip that part when we read that sometimes. Yeah. And like we jump past the the opening and the closing yeah. of it. <laughs> so what I – so basically what I'm arguing to this point is there was no way for the Jewish mind, if they were left in their own land without any other influence – to jump from the Satan of the Old Testament to the Satan of the New Testament. Yeah. Something had to happen for them to logically begin building the character sketch of what we now have as Satan. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that this Zoroastrian thought had a lot to do with it. Um, and I believe it influenced the way that the Book of Enoch was written. Um, but I think Enoch is kind of the Jewish way of working back through and legitimizing some of these new claims. Yeah. So, <clears throat> on to the next page here. Um, there was a couple things I wanted to talk about with Zoroastrianism because we, we said a big word and I don't want to just say, hey, Zoroastrianism is where it got its start. I Weren't they the wise men that came, the Magi? There's a connection there. There's a, yeah, we won't come there today. But, but I want to share a couple of the texts from that, um, from that period the writings of the Persians, so that you can... This is going to sound really familiar. So, so far, the passages we've read, none of those look like the devil that we hear about today. Yeah. So the, what you're about to read is Zoro, <clears throat> Zoroastrianism text. It's writings from that period, that Persian period. writings, yeah. yeah. So in chapter 100 of the book of Arda Virav, which is titled Aherman, I think I pronounced that wrong, but anyway, it sounded like it was authentic. Um, the narrator sees the evil spirit whose religion is evil and whoever ridiculed and mocked the wicked in hell. Now, there's two new concepts here. One is a great evil spirit that yeah. the Jews didn't have. Another is a hell in which people are tormented. They didn't have that either. They didn't have an afterlife even. Yeah. Um, or a concept of the afterlife. So these are new thoughts to the Jews. And then in Yasna uh, 32.3, here's the text, uh, these devas, or demons, are identified as the offspring not of Anagram Menu, but of Akem Manah, evil thinking. So basically these demons can pop up from people's evil thoughts, or they're empowered by people's evil thoughts. And then it says a few verses earlier, it is however the Dibbaman, uh, the deceiver, not otherwise identified, but probably Angra Manu, who induced the devas to choose um, et system mana, the worst thinking. <laughs> so you, this is where we start to get the idea of a tempter devil. And kind of like the devil on your shoulder kind yeah. of idea. And like yeah. it feeds the, your as, thoughts. As and... the devil is feeding this worst thinking and bad thinking... Um, evil spirits are feeding off of that. Yeah. So then in Yasna 32.13, 
The abode of the wicked is not the abode of Angra Manu, but the abode of the same worst thinking. So one would have expected Angra Manu to reign in hell since he had created death. And now at the end, the worst existence shall be for the deceitful. So this is from the Encyclopedia Aranica. Um, this goes way back to the time period of the Jews in Persia. So you get this first inkling of a devil on your shoulder, tempter, trying to encourage bad thinking. Yeah. So, th so this is kind of where the roots kind of set in for them as they were yep. conquered by the Persians, yep. influenced by them culturally and religiously. Mm -hmm. They would have had this understanding seeping into mm -hmm. their thoughts that there is these evil demon kind of things mm -hmm. that are feeding off your negative thoughts yep. and tempting you to do wrong. Right. And we also need to remember that when usually when the Jews were conquered, they protested the gods of their enemies yeah. because it was usually a hostile takeover. <clears throat> With the Persians, they almost saw them more as liberators. Yeah, because they Because freed the Babylonians them. were the crazy ones. Yeah. They were the beast of Daniel. Um, <laughs> like, they were the bad guys. Yeah, and the and, Persians liberated them from Babylon. Yep, and gave them back their land. Yeah. And so it wasn't like, here's these evil people that swept in and have bad theology. It was like, hey, these guys have theology similar to ours. And they're really good people. And they're freeing us. They're yeah. not oppressing us. They're giving us our land back, yep. funding the rebuilding of our nation. Yep. Yep. And there was like spotty areas of um, oppression, I'm sure. But for the most part, they overwhelmingly assisted. Compared to Babylon right. or Egypt. Yeah. I mean. Yep. So basically with images like this to draw from, we see a major shift in the way the Jewish people began to talk about evil and eventually Satan. So one of the most well-known uh, books of the Second Temple period outside of the New Testament is the Book of Enoch. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't read through it, um, I don't necessarily recommend it for all of our listeners. I mean, if you're eager to learn and wade through ancient texts, then it's cool. But it's, um, I would say that you gain more from reading Revelation. Than Enoch, yeah. yeah. And it's a lot of the same images and lingo. And but, same style of writing. Yep. Yeah. But Revelation knows Jesus. And so I'd advise that. But I'm not saying not to read it. Um, it's certainly influenced um, the book of Revelation. It influenced the Gospel of Matthew very heavily. Mm -hmm. um, the book of Enoch also is directly quoted a few times and then loosely quoted um, dozens of times. Like one on one occasion, Paul mentions that he has a friend who was transported to the um, third, third heaven. heaven. Yeah. And that's a reference to Enoch talking about the seven heavens. And so when Paul seems to be boasting about getting to the third heaven, he's <laughs> less than halfway there, um, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Yeah, it's yeah. not really a boast. <laughs> but it's we like read it sometimes tongue in cheek, boast. like a boast. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah I, I know somebody who was transported to the third <laughs> heaven. So anyway, all these ideas... Um, run rampant through the New Testament. Um, so, basically, the book of Enoch is um, divided into three to five parts, depending on which scholars you're letting splice it up. Um, and they believe that those different parts have different authors. Yeah. So, we can't say with authority what date it was written, 
we just know by the time Matthew and the New Testament is written, they all know it. They know, yeah. They know they're it versed, well. They, they're versed they're well in it. They're well-versed in it, yeah. Um, and so, with that in mind... Because Enoch is a character that we find in the scriptures. Yeah, actually, why don't you take us back there? Um, oh, I get through that now? Yeah, Genesis 5. Genesis 5, 24. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch never dies, they claim. Yeah. So this idea of a, of a man who never dies, but mm-hmm. was righteous enough to walk with God. Mm-hmm. And this idea. And then, so so to put, to dis, like dispel any ideas, like Enoch isn't the author of the book of Enoch. No. We have um, multiple different authors who are writing this book mm-hmm. in different time periods during Ezra, Nehemiah, Persian mm-hmm. kind of time. So here's the brilliance of it is you have these guys who they're getting all, all these new thoughts from the Persians and they're like, where does this fit into our scripture? What do we do with these thoughts? This idea of a cosmic dualism where there's actually an evil force out mm-hmm. to get us. Um, that was a new concept to them. So, so the book of Enoch itself, not, while not written by Enoch, is built upon the theory that Enoch went into God's space. Right. He never died. He went to be with God mm-hmm. and was given a tour and explained and was explained all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And then what? And then there's this revelation that other authors have. Yeah, it's uh, it's called um, apocalyptic literature. So yeah. it's the style of writing is a revealing of things. Like the book unseen. of Revelation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yep. And uh, Zechariah is another apocalyptic text and parts of Daniel. So it's it's not a new genre to the Jewish mind. Mm-hmm. It's actually a very popular genre in Second Temple literature. Um, it's also... The thing about Enoch was, like I was just about to say, there's a group of people who are trying to rationalize all these new thoughts, and they come across this obscure verse... A couple of obscure verses basically build the entire book of Enoch. Yeah. So they have the one about the watchers, which we'll get to in a second, but they also have this one where Enoch is just walks with God and he was no more. No further explanation is given. It's not like 20 pages later it says, oh, and that guy Enoch, he had a good time walking with God. And then he came back. No, it's just <laughs> like very like brief, obscure, and you're left with no answers. Well, now writers of this period are like, well, these answer a lot of our problems that we're having with this, these new Persian thoughts. We can reconcile these new thoughts through these texts that were obscure, that we didn't know the meaning before. Yeah. So that's how the Jewish mind is working it back into... Which is almost a, a form of midrash, midrash as well, isn't it? Exactly. Take yep. it, taking that's parts of scriptures yep. and putting it together and, and coming up with a thought. I mean, it was a common thing that was done, mm-hmm. where today you would be considered a heretic for doing stuff like midrash. Yeah. yeah. Well, sort of. We kind of do that on for normal. No, like a normal Sunday morning pastor that is pulling a couple texts from a couple different areas yeah. and then presenting a thought. Yeah. That's like kind of a weak Western style. Kind of like talking rush. about like the Good Shepherd and then going to Psalm twenty three. Yeah. Yeah, I did that this Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> um. I wouldn't say it's on the same level as Jewish Midrash, which no. was very calculated. Yeah. Um, imagine like 200-piece puzzle versus like 
a thousand piece puzzle. <laughs> I thought you were gonna go with a five piece puzzle. <laughs> um, like the 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 level of um, depth that they pursue their their connection points. So kind of lay the foundation. This wasn't a, a random thing that they did. No. This was an exercise that yeah. they did re- um, regularly. Yeah. In the Book of Enoch, while not being considered scripture necessarily, it was not just like some pop culture left behind series. Mm-hmm. It was actually used in teaching and explaining the Jewish worldview. Which is why we have Paul quoting it. Yeah. And, and we have the ideas from it popping up all over the New Testament. Mm-hmm. So in the Book of Enoch, the bad guy or the devil character is named Azazel, or some people pronounce it Azazel, but I think that's probably a Western yeah. <laughs> um, enunciation. Uh, according to the text, Azazel is the leader of the Watchers, or the Nephilim, who are a group of angels who rebelled in heaven and were cast to earth. This is a reference to Genesis 6-4. Um, did you just eat a piece of cheese? I did eat a piece of cheese. Okay. Do you want me to read? Sure. I'm okay. eating cheese. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Another one of those scriptures that we just read over and like, ah, oh, we don't want to deal with that. Let's just move on. Yep. And they're taking, well, when the writers of the book of Enoch are taking these and saying, hey, we've wrestled with these, but this is what it actually is meaning when mm-hmm. we connect it to what we're learning now. Yeah. So the Nephilim were fallen angels. Yeah. In sense. Which is interesting that that is never claimed per se. It's very mysterious in the Old Testament. Yeah. Like the original passage, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And it says, and these were mighty men. Yep. And they somehow inbred with humans. So it's just a weird passage. I know it gets all the alien conspiracy theory people all psyched, um, plus a ton of movies. I mean, if you Google, no, don't even. But, I mean, if you were to, like, Google or YouTube Nephilim, it is just absurd, or The Watchers. Like, I think... Most people, there's been a huge revival in talking about this sort of um, spiritual stuff. Yeah. And so people are interested. The more we talk about aliens, the more we talk about the Book of Enoch, and it's just an escalation down a black hole on the internet. (laughs) Um, But what they are now saying um, in the Book of Enoch is that those watchers, that that actually represents a rebellion of spiritual beings against God. Yeah. Um, These are the the ones who rebelled, mm -hmm. fell from heaven. Right. And now the evil has come down to earth. Yep. So Azazel also has Old Testament roots, but they were isolated to one chapter in Leviticus. So that's Leviticus 16. Yeah. I'll read Leviticus 16, 6 through 10. Um, And it says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take two goats and send them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, and a one lot for the Lord and another lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which um, the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat 
on which the lot fell for Azazel, shall be preserved alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, and that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Does that come up very often in your Sunday morning homilies? I'm going to say that I've never written a homily or preached on Azazel ever. Just, I, just being honest there. I'll be honest, I don't know if I ever read this. I might have fallen asleep <laughs> during Leviticus when I came to this because I, if you had asked me if Azazel was in the Bible prior to studying for this, I think yeah. I would have said no, it's in the book of Enoch. Um, but yeah, so again, a, an obscure passage. Yeah that becomes a highlighted reality in the book of Enoch. And the interesting thing that you have here is the two offerings and the one that falls on the, the lot that falls on the, on the offering for Azazel, they let it go. Yeah. And there is one more verse that has to do with this, but it was um, a lot of repetition. So the basically what they would do is they would have somebody, um, the high priest, lay all the sins of Israel onto the goat that was for Azazel. And then they would send the goat out, and the person would have to come back in and wash all their clothes and become ceremonially pure again after they've led the goat out into the wilderness. Out of, outside the camp. Yep. And so they would basically take the sins of Israel, put them out into the wilderness, and then the sins of Israel were devoured up by Azazel. Kind of weird when you think that Jesus was crucified outside the camp. Yeah. <laughs> Taking on the sins of the world. Maybe he was his age. No, we won't say his age. Maybe he was being presented. Presented as his age. Yeah. That would mess people's atonement theory up. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not go there yet. <laughs> <laughs> but what is happening here is so the name and or- origin of Azazel is uncertain. Some say it might have just been an evil spirit that lived in the wilderness, according to Jewish thought. Um, but that's not explicitly said throughout the text. And this is the only thing that we're given for Azazel. It's yeah. the only context we have. Yep. Yeah. Until you start reading like the Book of Enoch. <clears throat> yep, exactly. And so there may have been traditions around Azazel. We don't know, but they chose not to give us that context yeah. when we read this. So essentially there's an Azazel that lives out in the wilderness that feeds on the sin goat. That sounds like a, a pet cemetery <laughs> horror movie there. <laughs> Um, so let's get into Enoch a little bit. I want to read a couple of these passages. So in this scene, the good angels and the people on earth have been pleading with God to do something about the instigators of the heavenly rebellion, which they say has created much bloodshed on earth. So basically the scene opens up. They're like, Hey God, there's a lot of violence down here. And they learned this violence from these angels that rebelled in heaven And what are you going to do about it? Mm -hmm. We know that you're all-powerful, God. Do something about this. And God judges Azazel and gives commands to a couple of the angels. Um, So in the book of Enoch, there are some named angels. One of them is Raphael. And so in Enoch 10, verses 4 through 8, it says, And again the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot, And cast him into the darkness, and make an opening in the desert, which is in Dudeo, and cast him therein, and place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness, and let him abide there forever, and cover his face that he might not see the light. And on the day of the great judgment he shall be cast into the fire, 
and heal the earth which the angels have corrupted, and proclaim the healing of the earth, that they may heal the plague, and that all the children of men may not perish through all the secret things that the watchers have disclosed and have taught their sons. And the whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel. To him ascribe all sin. So now all of a sudden we have a character that is responsible for all of humanity's sin. He is a personification of all evil. Mm-hmm. Where in the Old Testament we really never we never have that not um, even an picture. inkling of it. Yeah. No, he works for God. Yeah, and now all of a sudden there's this tie in the Book of Enoch, and, or through their thoughts as well in the, in the mm-hmm. um, intertestamental period that this evil is now the product of something fallen from heaven. Mm-hmm. This now cosmic dualism yep. that was never presented before. And it's presented to them through the Persians. Yep. And they're trying to now meld their two thought processes together, do you think, to assimilate more? I th- yeah, I think they were processing with a convincing argument from the Persians. Yeah. So they got these new thoughts. The thoughts didn't immediately register as blasphemous or evil. So they're like, well, that makes a lot of sense. That would explain some of the bad stuff that happens in this world. Yeah. And so then they, in turn, went back to their scriptures and they tried to find places in which this narr- this new narrative plugs into the old narrative. And we're not saying this in a, in a vacuum. We're saying this based on um, evidence through the writings of the intertestamental history. We see the development <clears throat> of what we would call the Satan char- character happening. Now. Mm-hmm. There isn't this, but we're just trying to project to, to bind the two. We're saying that... Through the intertestamental history period, through specifically the book of Enoch, we can see why, come the temptation of Jesus, that this Satan character is more developed and is taking on a different role than he did in the Old Testament. Yeah. It would make absolutely no sense for you to read the three passages in the Old Testament about Satan Mm -hmm. and then flip to the New Testament and start reading. You would just say, well, why the heck is he so developed? Yeah. And we gloss over it because we were raised with it. But for somebody new to the text who's never read the Bible, it would seem like somebody turned off the light one morning (laughs) and it was one way. They flipped on the light the next day and all of a sudden it's a full-fledged evil character. Yeah, which is completely out of character for what he's looking Mm -hmm. like in the Old Testament. Right. So, And like we said, like I said, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. No. We don't go from Zechariah to the Gospels and all of a sudden it happens. There's that three to four hundred years and they are, the Jewish people are being ruled by the Persians and through that ruling of the Persians, their intertwining of the Zoroastrianism thoughts and the followers of Yahweh comes about. Mm -hmm. And through the, the writings of Enoch, that is reflected through the writings of Enoch, that the Zoroastrianism thought is coming into the Jewish religion um, so it's not this, hey, it all of a sudden happens and we're trying to project and pull text out of nowhere. We're following a linear narrative of, of time. Yeah. Yep. Um, there was a couple things that were really interesting about this is there's, um, there's a few references here. This, this passage that we just read, we'll have to read again for the next one because there's actually a portion in which it is quoted 
Um, I want to say, I can't remember which gospel it is, but the idea about binding um, the devil yep. and throwing him into binding the strong man, the hell that was designed for the devil and his angels. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what this passage is talking about. It's an image of judgment against the great evil. Um, but that line to Azazel, ascribe all sin. That is a brand new thought in Jewish thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't ascribe sin to anything other than men making bad choices. <laughs> yeah, accountability. Right. Yeah. And you were either one with the law or you were breaking the law. And now this idea that somebody could be tempted by forces of evil. Um, that would be an interesting thing to see how it affected the people. Because if you go from a very pragmatic, you have life and death set before you, like the Deuteronomy passage, mm-hmm. which one are you going to choose? Well, I want to choose this, but this devil creature is, is tempting me, me yeah. to do other things. To him, ascribe all the sin. It's not my fault. It's the the devil's fault. The devil made me do it. Interesting change of thinking, which of course is happening over hundreds of years, generations of time. Yeah. So it's not like they went to bed one day and it's a slow boil. Yeah. Yeah. But still, it's a huge. It's a major shift in thinking because the whole sacrificial system is based on the fact that they're atoning for sins that they choose to do. Exactly. It's not saying, well, it's them taking the responsibility (laughs) for it. Right. And said now through Azazel and kind of the melding of Zoroastrianism into it. Mm-hmm. They're kind of not removing their accountability, but giving themselves that it's not all my fault. Right. Sin made me do it. Yep. And we're saying Satan, or we're saying Azazel is like Satan um, because the character lines up to what we read in the New Testament yeah. as Satan. So even in saying this passage is about Satan... We're actually reading New Testament authors That's back true. onto Enoch. Yeah. Because Azazel, Azazel was not necessarily the Satan of the Old Testament. Yeah. Azazel was the Azazel that was in the wilderness that the, that was carrying all the lamb got sent to. Oh, yeah. And then, so, so basically what we're saying, like, so Azazel is not Satan for one. So we're not saying that Enoch is writing Azazel and saying that this is the Satan of the Old Testament. We're exactly. saying that the slow meld of Zoroastrianism with Jewish thought at this time leads us to the Satan we find in the desert with Jesus. Right. The ultimate evil. Right. Because yeah. where does Satan first appear in the New Testament? In the desert. In the wilderness with Jesus. Yeah. So it's definitely a slow boil that's happening. And we're not there yet. You know, next episode we'll get into the New Testament and we'll actually cast some of these New Testament thoughts back onto Enoch to check our work yeah. um, of where we are so far. But it's to me, it's super interesting to think, and it should it should come naturally for us to just realize that thoughts develop over time. Yeah. But we seem to forget about it when we have a nicely bound leather bound Bible, and we open <laughs> it and we say, "This is the inspired word of God." and it's inerrant, which you know are phrases that I believe. But then to flip through, um, actually, inerrant would need a, di- a disclaimer <laughs> attached to it. Um, but to say that this is the word of God, and to be able to flip through and read those first three passages about Satan, 
um, and then jump to the New Testament, you're like, what the heck happened? Same thing happens with hell, yeah. um, which I think we should go back once we finish the devil and we can go back and do hell. Yeah. And it's going to be basically the same timeline with a little extra Greek influence added in. Yeah. Um, maybe not instead of Zoroastrianism, but in addition added to. Added yeah. So there's some Greek influence that comes in and adds to this whole thing with Hades. Because, yeah, you take a look at the Old Testament and, and hell, as we envision it in the modern Christian world, this doesn't exist. No, in the King James Bible, they always translate Sheol as hell. Or, or the grave. Yeah. It could just be the grave. It doesn't even need to be the proper term Sheol. Yeah. And they'll pr- translate it as hell. They're just hell-hungry translation. <laughs> <laughs> it's like everything's hell. <laughs> it's, it's authorized. Yeah. The grave? Oh, that's hell. Oh, yeah. Um, so, anyway... That's where we're at right now. Yeah, so we're kind of like hang it there until we get into when we get into the New Testament yeah. next time because it's that slow evolution of thought. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're all guilty of the same things. I mean, I think when we, I mean, the Western culture of church has mm-hmm. been the evolution of thoughts and going back and finding something and trying to superimpose it back on the text mm-hmm. to be able to make ourselves feel okay with the decisions that we make. I mean, this is a safe place to say this. It's not like it's going on the internet or anything. But it's like the whole, like, Trump building a wall and then people quoting, like, Nehemiah saying, like, the godly people are going to build walls and just taking that thought of this is the right thing to do and finding, like, this weird scripture context to be like, no, you see, godly people in Nehemiah, they were building walls and this is what Christians should do. And that's not quite a slow boil, but people... I would liken that to, like, the two-piece puzzle yeah. of thought versus a thousand-piece puzzle. Yeah. Um, when we seem to do... When we try to do these things, it gets really lame. Yeah. <laughs> like, the the further in you go to a Jewish unpacking of text, the more you're amazed at the depth of their thinking, their willingness to gloss over discrepancies and stick to the points that they're building and there's just a level of brilliance that you come to appreciate when you read something like the book of Enoch in conjunction with the New Testament and the Old Testament. Yeah. And it gives that bridge of why we end up with what we have in the New Testament. Exactly. Because if we if we don't have that I think if when we lack that understanding we then read the Satan of the New Testament back into the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. That's a dangerous thing to do. Right. Well, at least in our limited understanding it is. Yeah. But what we're going to find out is by the time we get to Revelation at the end of the next episode, they have redefined the Satan character for the final time, and it becomes the fullest image of Satan. So the the grand um, finale of the ultimate evil rearing its head takes yeah. place in Revelation. And we begin looping in things that have never been attributed to Satan. Yeah. Um, so we'll get there next episode. But um, it's just so cool for me to take some of these verses that we just basically jump past or gloss over and see how people at that time were teaching them and rounding them out. Yeah. Because they, mm-hmm. they were taking the concept of like, um, the Nephilim yep. and um, Azazel and, and Enoch and, Enoch, and they're kind of like th- we don't know the answers to these but now we're rounding it out through Midrash and coming mm-hmm. back full circle with the, our culture and our understanding 
Yep. And through that, we develop this different character mm-hmm. that the authors of the New Testament run with. Yep. Yep. And some people might be a little disturbed that there's outside influence affecting the New Testament authors. Yeah. Like, not everybody likes to think that the Persians could have influenced Jewish thought. But it also attributes the idea that the authors who are writing the New Testament know their audience. Yep. And their audience thought isn't the same as the Old Testament's audience, the the way their thought processes worked. And saying, you know, we do them a disservice if we say that they just became brainwashed by the Persians. Yeah. Because it's almost like they take the... They took the thoughts, and like I said earlier, they were like, well, how does this measure up to our scriptures? And the only way they found to line them up with the scriptures is by taking this triangle of obscure passages, the the Nephilim, the Enoch, and the Azazel passages, and they basically created a triangle within scripture to place the Book of Enoch and have it grow out of that. And a lot of the book of Enoch is also based on the idea that Enoch received special revelation when he was with God. Mm-hmm. And that is how a lot of inspired scripture is taught, right? There's this, yeah. I have been, I have and had, an, you have John taken up into heaven and inspired by God to write the book of Revelation. Yeah. The equivalent happened with the authors of Enoch is the claim. Yeah. And really, if you, if you do decide to read the book of Enoch, um, first of all, read um, First Enoch. It's called First Enoch, but really it's kind of the only Enoch. The other ones are later translations, and they're, they get weird. <laughs> so read um, First Enoch, and if you're going to start with anything, um, just start right at the beginning because it kind of gets weirder as you go. <laughs> and so then when you get weirded out, you can stop. And also read it with an open mind. The- yeah. Like, we're not telling you they're going to find Jesus in the book of Enoch, because you're not finding Jesus in the book of Enoch. No, you are You are seeing the framework for how the New Testament talks, though. Yeah. Um, and that's what I was going to say, is you, if you start reading the book of Enoch, you'll feel as if you're reading a biblical book. Mm-hmm. And if you're not extremely well-versed in the Bible, I could probably pull out some passages from Enoch, and you would think they were Revelation. Yeah. Or Daniel. So unless you're like super well read in the Bible, there's no telling the difference. Yeah, um, it does jive with the overarching narrative and storyline. Um, some uh, I can't remember the exact orthodox um, di- uh, sect of the church that still reads Enoch. It might be Ethiopian Orthodox. Okay, but they still use it in their liturgy yeah, or their scriptures. In their scriptures, yeah. There's, there's a couple groups of Christians in the world today that still use Enoch as scripture. That would drive the wrong way here. It yep. Drive people the wrong way. I can't say there's any in the U.S., but there's definitely a lot um, more people reading it. The mm-hmm. more we get better translations, and finding the Dead Sea Scrolls was a big deal because we saw how influenced the Dead Sea Scroll community was by the Book of Enoch. Mm-hmm. And so it gained a lot of momentum there, not even though that's like 50 years ago. Now. <laughs> and, it's, and it's still a text that was written in a biblical historical time frame. Yep. About God. Yep. With godly people. And it doesn't necessarily go against what the Bible teaches um, any more than any of the other texts of the Bible go yeah. against each other. <laughs> <laughs> it just wasn't then when the popularity poll at uh, <clears throat> who were canonized in scripture, I guess. 
Well, I think it could have potentially, because of its length, it could have overshadowed Revelation, Revelation. and yeah. I think Revelation is a far more valuable text. Clearly centered on Christ. Mm -hmm. So um, we will be um, doing um, part three, New yes. Testament of Satan, devil, Lucifer, whichever way you want to word it yep. right now. We'll start off Azazel. in the wilderness with so, Azazel and Jesus. Dan's been drinking more than one drink today, but I think he's only going to review the one he has currently opened. I barely cracked my um, second beer. Which means I should crack this one open to finish this with you. Sure. Okay. Um, so this second beer is Diabolical, which I thought was fitting. <laughs> um, it's made in Traverse City, Michigan um, by North Peak Brewing Company. And it's an India Pale Ale. And it's got a nice, like, it's kind of like a Centennial yeah. IPA from Founders. So it's, it's got heavy hops. It's If you don't like a hoppy flavor, then it's not your beer. I mean, it's it's an IPA. I got one from Beards Brewery because my wife is telling me to trim the beard off a little bit. But um, it is a um, bright, just a great, I've been liking grapefruit um, drinks recently, but this is a bright grapefruit, seasonal. Um, and I have to say, I wasn't super impressed, unfortunately. Is it weak? It's weak. It's one that you can drink more than one of quite. Is it, is it as good as the first drink I had, the Ballast Point? Grapefruit. I don't know. I haven't tried that one. Is that one? It's good. I, I can't find the hints of grapefruit really in here. Okay. That's um, Yeah. It was by Petoskey. I mean, I found it. I drank it. I'm not... Um, by, yeah, so it's by... Uh, their brewery, sorry, isn't Petoskey. Um, Beards Brewery. I should try some other stuff before I don't... Before I badmouth them online. But I'm not really doing that. It's just I was expecting more of a grapefruit flavor. And you didn't get And it. I didn't get it. So, um, I'm Paul. I'm Dan. And we'll see you next time. See you guys next time, yeah.